Well, like the other brothers who are speaking in this conference, I want to say what a privilege it is to be invited to thank Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Beakey for the privilege that they've given to us to attend a very remarkable conference. More people in this room than there were ministers who were ejected from the Church of England in 1662, and I've been wondering what they would think about this gathering. They certainly would see the fruition of William Cooper's words, wouldn't they? That the clouds you so much dread are big with blessing and will break upon your head. It's one of the remarkable things really about the whole Puritan experience that it was in those days when they were barred from their own congregations, barred from their own towns, but sometimes at risk of life and limb and liberty and happiness and family, they would seek to continue to minister to their people. But in those days when their mouths were closed, their hands were busy. And much of what we have in the thesaurus of Puritan literature today, we owe to those days of silence. Although not yet dead, they continued to speak, and because they wrote, though dead, they continue to speak. And it's about what is in so many ways central to this whole movement that we are to draw attention this evening. Puritan experiential, or if you're British, Puritan experimental theology. And in bringing this subject to our attention, I think I face three challenges. The first is a chronological challenge that the next address, I think, is at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, and so there seems to be no terminus ad quem to exactly when this message comes to a conclusion. And that may be well because this address covers almost everything, doesn't it? These three big words, that's what this conference is about, Puritan experiential theology. The limiting factor, however, is that I have a row of my brothers sitting in front of me We are doing the Puritan thing. We are speaking and we are combining together, which makes the conference a great joy. But I have to try and negotiate this topic, which covers everything else in the conference, in such a way that they are not sitting there cursing me or praying, please close his mouth so that he doesn't say any more about that subject. And I want to honor that privilege I've been given of dealing with this broad subject and also our deep and affectionate brotherhood together by not transgressing into other areas, which will inevitably mean that this will not be a holistic picture of Puritan experiential theology and that I will try to pick points and illustrations that may well not be covered in other addresses, so that when we have the whole picture, we may feel and rejoice in the weight of this theology, not just because it was Puritan, but because it was biblical, and because it is so wonderfully experiential. 
and our interest, therefore, is not antiquarian. Indeed, if we were to locate this theme of Puritan experiential theology, we would probably do so in such passages as Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul's emphasis that real transformation of the life takes place through the renewal of the mind, through the teaching of Scripture in such a way that there is this unreserved and unmitigated consecration of our whole beings to the Lord and a discovery of what it means to delight and savor the Lord's will. And Paul's teaching at the end of 2 Timothy 3 about the comprehensive usefulness of Scripture as God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And so, through the chapter break between chapter 3 and 4, he picks up these themes and says, if this is what Scripture is for, then this is what Scripture is for in your preaching. And if there is one thing that is sure about Puritan theology is that by and large it was a preached theology. At times they were controversialists and polemicists, At times they dealt with issues that were technical, but the reason we love them is that the vast preponderance of what they gave to the church was theology for the church, the whole Word of God for all the people of God to transform them into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why 2 Corinthians 4 was such a significant passage also for them, that they sought to expound the truth plainly, and in that exposition to expound the hearts and consciences of those who listened to them, to bring them before God, to see themselves before the judgment seat of Christ, and therefore to be able to see the glories of the work of the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And I want to introduce this by trying to remind you of the context into which this theology spoke. The Puritans were faced historically with a Catholicized society rooted in Rome that had begun to manifest itself, of course, in the 16th and 17th centuries in England in an Anglo-Catholic fashion. And those things were political threats. Uh, When you think of the dates of the great Puritans, they are very near the Spanish Armada. They are very near the famous gunpowder plot of 1605. Roman Catholicism was seen as a massive political threat because as the supposed vicar of Jesus Christ, the Pope claimed everywhere. And so there was a consciousness in 16th and 17th century England, particularly almost akin to the kind of communism consciousness there was one time in the United States of America, a profound fear of the political significance of Rome. Of course, what characterized the Puritan preachers was the recognition that it was not the political threat of Rome but the eternal threat 
of Roman Catholic theology that was the greater danger. And I don't think we really understand the force of their theology or the force of their preaching unless we recognize a couple of elements in the way in which that Catholicism, whether Roman or Anglo-Catholicism in England, the way in which that Catholicism operated in terms of its view of salvation. First of all, that salvation was always and necessarily sacramentally administered, and that therefore salvation was applied to you, if it were possible in the first place, by the priest rather than by the Holy Spirit. And the second was this, that Catholicism always held the doctrine that justification, they claimed, was by grace. But what they meant by that was that the grace that was communicated in the sacraments from baptism to extreme unction eventually might work in you such righteousness if your faith was brought to a position where you loved God without reservation or dilution, then you would have been brought by this sacramental administration of grace to the point where you would be justified, quotes, by grace, because that sacramental grace had made you internally justifiable. And my own conviction is certainly about both England and Scotland that that theology never left either country. And the effect of it was, as the church itself taught in the Counter-Reformation, assurance of salvation was virtually impossible, and even if it were possible, it was undesirable. And so the very best that you might hear someone say if you asked them about heaven and glory would be, I hope that enough has been done in me for God to justify me. And in that plan of salvation, assurance is impossible. Nobody can ever be sure that enough has been done in them to make them justifiable. And when you think about that, that was the dark shadow into which the Reformers first spoke, you begin to understand why within years, for example, William Perkins, of whom we've already heard, is, is born before John Calvin dies, that this is the world into which the Puritans are forging the biblical teaching of the way of salvation and seeking to preach it. And so, almost the inevitable result of that is that on the one hand, what happens is there is a powerful recovery of the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that had certainly been true in their father figure, John Calvin, sometimes referred to as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. But if anything, that was pressed home by the Puritans to see the theft that had taken place in Rome and in Anglo-Catholicism 
and to wrest the gospel back and to help people to understand the sovereignty of the Spirit and the grace of the Spirit and without the work of the Spirit, it would be impossible to come to the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. But when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were immediately and finally justified. So that you imagine people sitting in these Puritan congregations and their ministers saying to them, some of you have been believers now for 20 years, and some of you became believers last week. Those of you who have been believers for 20 years need to understand you are no more justified than this new believer, and fail to understand that, and you have mixed up justification and sanctification. And you young believers need to know you will never be more justified than you are now. And you can imagine a group of people hearing that and sensing together what will bind young and old together that here at the foot of the cross we really are one, and it would lead to this explosion of assurance and joy to know that God has justified you and that therefore the glorification is as sure as the justification. And yet at the same time, the way in which the Puritan preachers employed their theology to overturn the false thinking of people who had been enamored in this false gospel inevitably produced in many hearts the question, am I really a Christian? And hence the great interest that you find in many of the Puritan writers in how do we bring people to the assurance of salvation. And sometimes, of course, they are seeking to work through the doctrine of assurance, but they are physicians of the soul, just as some of them are actually physicians of the body. And they realize that when people come with symptoms, they often self-diagnose, and they get the diagnosis entirely wrong. And it may well be that the real problem, we heard a little of this this morning, I think, in Dr. Beakey's exposition, this glorious exposition of adoption that one of the things that had marred their assurance of salvation was that they, they had lost the sense of the marvelous fatherhood of God. Or they'd, they'd mingled sanctification with justification. And so these many details that we find that, that Kevin DeYoung was speaking about, are the details of spiritual physicians analyzing the spiritual condition of their spiritual patients in order to bring about the right diagnosis in the spiritual body so that they might bring to them the right pharmaceuticals out of the gospel. Because they understood that the gospel is teaching that brings reproof that brings correction, and that brings this glorious sufficiency to bring men and women in a world like this to a calm assurance that God is their Father, that Christ is their Savior, that the Spirit is their indweller, and that heaven is 
their home. And if that's the case, what else can possibly matter than that others also should share in these privileges? And so, the Puritan pastor thought of himself as a theologian and understood that he therefore needed essentially to be two things. One, doctrinally astute, and two, spiritually adept. And you hear in that echoes of the Westminster Directory's section on preaching, don't you? Doctrine and uses, doctrine and application. This for them is theology because this for them is what Scripture actually is for. And so, for the Puritans, although some of them were academics, none of them ever thought about the theologian as an academic, but the theologian as a preacher and a pastor and a physician of the soul who therefore, if he was dealing with the body of Christ on earth, needed a grasp of the whole body of divinity so that he could analyze the sicknesses of individuals and churches and bring to bear upon them the healing and transforming power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, everybody's had plenty of points, and I've got five. And they're all very basic, and none of them, I think, transgresses on any of the other brothers who will speak in the next couple of days. Five hallmarks of Puritan theology. The first of them, the most obvious of them, is that Puritan theology was biblical. They had a deep doctrine and an expressed doctrine of the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture. And they had this great vision in their ministries, and their vision was to have the Scriptures in the hands of all, that the Scriptures might enter the hearts of all. And so, if you happen to have an interest in Puritan portraits, can't imagine many of us do because so many of them look virtually the same. I think there should have been a prize for anyone who can guess the identity of the Puritans on the front page of the program. It's very characteristic in those Puritan portraits that there will be a book nearby or a book in the hand, and that book, of course, is the Scriptures. Isn't that how Bunyan has this beautiful picture when the pilgrim arrives in interpreter's house, and he's given all these little hints about the way the gospel works, and he sees this portrait of a man, and uh, he has his eyes lifted up to heaven, and he has the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth written on his lips, the world behind his back, and standing as if he pleaded with men and a crown of gold hanging over his head. You've you got to imagine that he was thinking of William Perkins. But it's the quintessential picture of the Puritan, whether the Puritan is a preacher in the church or a member of the congregation. 
Because indeed, and we know this increasingly as scholars become more interested in raking about in old places and finding sometimes diaries that have been hidden away for years, we know this was not only true of the ministers, but also true of the people. It wasn't that ministers were theologians. It was where theology really matters, the people were encouraged also to be theologians. And we get some really beautiful insights into some of these otherwise very ordinary people. One of my favorites is a man called John Bruin. He was a squire, landowner, in the county of Cheshire. He lived from 1560 to 1625. And we know something about him because his wife's brother-in-law wrote a kind of memoir of him. He seemed to become serious when his father died and through the Puritan connections of his wife. And uh, John Bruin rose at five o'clock in the winter, between three and four in the summer, spent the first couple of hours of the day meditating on the Word of God. He had a staff, and so he had two large Bibles placed in the entry hall so that if anyone was waiting, they could profit from spending their time reading the Scriptures. He had another large Bible in the family room for his own family to read. And his was not an armchair theology. He virtually bankrupted himself because he gave away so much of his sufficiency to the needy. He was a living, walking, talking, breathing version of the gospel. And William Perkins said of him, his house was none other than the house of God, and for religion he carried the top sail of all religion. You've walked into a house like that, I hope. You walk into the house and you realize this is a house where the people are accustomed to God Himself dwelling among them, and the Father and the Son coming by the Spirit and indwelling the occupants. Here's what Archbishop Usher, who wrote the 1615 Irish Articles of Religion that were so influential in the Westminster Confession. This is lovely. Is this your picture of a Puritan? If not, your picture's wrong. In him was the very beauty of holiness. He was of so amiable and cheerful a countenance that when I beheld him, I was reminded of Moses whose very face shone as honoring some more than ordinary eminency of grace in his heart. We don't use that language anymore, but it's beautiful, isn't it? Who's the last person you said had uh, more than ordinary eminency of grace in his heart? And there were others like him. Uh, we should be grateful to one of them who was a close friend of John Owen. name was Sir John Hartop. So, John Hartop was such a serious Christian, he learned shorthand. He learned shorthand so that he could take down John Owen's sermons in shorthand. That's why we actually have some of John Owen's sermons, because he went home after the services, and then he transcribed them because he wanted to engage in what the Puritans called improving the sermon. Now, if you're a preacher, your congregation does that, but the language isn't the same. 
by improving, they meant how do we take this and how do we enable it to work its way through into the whole of our lives? So, for example, the Westminster Divines spoke about improving your baptism. They, they weren't fussing about our denominational divides or saying, get water from the River Jordan. They were saying, when did you, 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 you people don't even think about your baptism. But in the Scriptures, it really functions in Christians' lives. So, Sir John would improve John Owen's sermons by writing them out and by meditating upon them. He would have had not an idea that he would be published by the Puritan series of the 19th century or the Banner of Truth in the 20th century or by the forthcoming crossway republication of John Owen in the 21st century. What we owe to Sir John is just absolutely amazing, and the reason was because the Word of God was in his hands, and it had got into his heart. But there was more to it than this. They had a vision to have Scripture in the hands of all, to get it into the hearts of all, but they had a tremendous recognition that the Scriptures are sufficient for everyone and for all of life. Sometimes when we think about the Puritans, we take note of their interest in what they called the adiaphora, that there are things about which Scripture doesn't speak directly. And sometimes we make the mistake of saying, if Scripture doesn't speak directly to something, then you can do what you want. Not so. For them, since Scripture was sufficient for every single circumstance in life, in those cases where Scripture did not speak directly, not able to appeal to a particular passage or context or verse, they were always asking the question, how then do we bring the whole tenor of Scripture to bear upon our situation? so that in everything we may please God according to what He has taught us in His Word. This is one of the reasons for the famous story of Richard Rogers of Wethersfield, whose dear father had been martyred. When someone who knew him said, Mr. Rogers, I like you and your company very well, only you are too precise. And Rogers famously gave the the reply, I serve a precise God. What a man was that? This was the man who wrote, listen to this, seven treatises on Scripture directions leading to happiness. It was the detractors of the Puritans, the demeanors of the Puritans, like the demeanors of Christians that painted them in these false colors. If you're a real Christian, you're going to be happy because the Bible tells you that with all your struggles, the gospel makes you happy. And of course, this was not, um, this was not merely a, a trivial thing, this knowledge of Scripture. I like to tell seminary students about 
a little examination that an almost unknown to us anyway, uh, by and large today, I don't think he's ever been reprinted, a 17th century minister by the name of John Carter, and he comes forward for his exam to enter the ministry, and he's asked the basic question. I'm not sure that they asked this question in Kevin DeYoung's uh, consistory meetings there. Have you read through the Bible? And he gave this reply. He's not ordained yet. He's a young man. Yes, he said. I've, I've read the Old Testament twice through in the Hebrew, and I've read the New Testament often in the Greek. An egghead? John Carter became locally famous because he gave away virtually his entire clerical income to the needy. In his parish, his kindness to animals became a byword. It was even said that if you were a cow, a horse, a pig, or a dog, you would give a great deal to be Mr. Carter's cow, or horse, or pig, <laughs> or dog. And it's hard for us to understand how dramatically this Bible-centeredness contrasted with the Roman Catholicism and the Anglo-Catholicism with which so many of these people had become accustomed. Catholicism focused on the sacraments. Puritanism focused on the Word. It was paradoxically never better expressed than it was by Archbishop William Laud, albeit he said it in Latin. He said, at the altar, it is hoc est corpus meum, but in the pulpit, it is merely hoc est verbum meum. The sacraments in all their beauty glorified, the Word of the living God in all its life-transforming power demeaned. Perhaps even more telling is the fact, and I think this is an interesting thing to reflect on, that the Puritans never regarded the book itself, the book itself, as to be honored. But what was in the book? So, in High Anglicanism, the Bible was gilded, and uh, you can see it yourself on YouTube if you want. It will be held up, admired, bowed to, adored, and closed. If you saw a Puritan Bible, it would be marked up, it would be annotated, and it would end up dog-eared in order that they might come to know the God of the Bible. That was why they loved preaching, because for them, preaching was, as it were, access to the throne room of God, who continued to speak through His Word, not some word that had been spoken in the past, but as, for example, Hebrews comments on uh, the book of Proverbs, this is what God is saying to you now. Have you forgotten His exhortation to you now? 
And the result of that is, as they became Scripture-saturated, you all know the famous words of Spurgeon about John Bunyan. If you pricked him anywhere, he would bleed bibline. And that was true not only of the famous ones to us now, like John Bunyan, but to the most ordinary believers. So, Puritan experiential theology was, first of all, biblical. It was second, and this may seem to be redundant, but I think the point will become clear. It was not only biblical, it was theological. Theological in the sense of its God-centeredness. Theological in the sense of the echo of that theology. Then I'll go to the altar of God, to God my chiefest joy the God-centeredness of it. And I think this, it, it almost doesn't need to be said that when you read a piece of that kind of literature and compare it with the kind of literature we mortals write in our present time, you see so much of the difference between Puritanism as learning the art of living well to God and its contrast of learning the art of living well to yourself. And uh, there are not a few Christian books that go under the title of Christian that are really about self more than they are about God. How to have a good life, not how to know a great God. And I want to strike three notes here. The first of them is that from ancient days, the term theologian, theologos, meant not so much what we think of as a theologian, either an academic, but actually somebody who exalted the deity of the Lord Jesus. So, for example, in the old uh, Bibles, Revelation is written by St. John the Divine. Um, not meaning you're divine, my friend, but meaning he was a theologian um, because of the way in which the book of Revelation was seen to be such an exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that note is something that we see in the Puritans. In my own view, and I confess a certain bias here, no one had a higher experiential Christology than John Owen, who is often regarded as perhaps the most cerebral of those theologians, because Owen ransacks the glories of the work of Jesus Christ. He sees the work of Jesus Christ in all the many dimensions of what he has done in order to deal with the many dimensions of the fallenness of our human condition. And among these, this is just one note that Owen strikes that I think rarely appears in the works of later theologians and, and rarely gets a great deal of attention. Owen ponders the question, of what it means for Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection, by His final coming again and putting all things under His feet. What does it mean that Jesus Christ becomes not just the head of the church, but the head of all things? And here is what he says. He says, in the beginning, God created two families, the family in heaven 
of angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, principalities, powers. We've sung about them once or twice today, perhaps unthinkingly. That is the family of God created for heaven. Yes, in His economy, they will have a ministry to those who are on earth, but they are not created for earth. They are heavenly creatures. They are spirits. They are created, as it were, to live in the heavenly realms. And then this other family, the family of human beings created as His image. Owen reflects on the fact that once or twice in the Scriptures, the expression, the sons of God, refers to these heavenly, supraterrestrial creatures. But then there is other, this other family, sons of God. A proportion of those heavenly creatures, opaque though it may be, rebelled against their head. The totality of the family on earth fell in Adam. And in His mercy, God preserved the elect angels. And in His unfathomable grace that even angels longed to look into, He saved a people for Himself. And what He plans to do finally is to take these two families like almost as though they were separate branches of the families of Jesus Christ. And in the consummation, Jesus Christ, becoming the head over all things, will bring these two families together as one. And that too is the fruit of His atonement. Without that atonement, no final reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. Angels and men, cherubim and kings, passing strangers, but now united before the throne of God as one. That's actually the picture in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Men don't become angels, despite what people seem to think today, and angels don't become men. And in the economy of God, there is an angelic ministry. Members of that family minister to members of this family. But in the end, all the elect in heaven and earth belonging to one family. It is beyond imagination to think of what that might mean. These creatures, what do they represent? We know angels are sent to us as ministering spirits, but in a way they are extraterrestrials, aren't they? I mean, no one says forget about any other kind of extraterrestrials. <laughs> These are the extraterrestrials. It's amazing to me how people today say to us as Christians, do you believe in extraterrestrials? Of course we believe in extraterrestrials. <laughs> but not your stupid kind of extraterrestrials, <laughs> God's kind. C can you imagine that? And this is just a tiny bit 
where what Owen is trying to do, I think, which is a great maxim in theology, is seeking to listen to the details of what Scripture says until you've come to the very edge of revelation, and then looking over, lost in wonder and love and praise. But beside this, I need to hurry on to a second thing that is very characteristic of Owen, and that is that he is also experientially Trinitarian, and that was true of all of the great theologians of the Puritan period. And a third thing, which I think is not unimportant for us to emphasize, that while we can say in general terms the Puritans were what today is usually called cessationists, that doesn't mean they'd cease to believe in a supernatural God or His supernatural activity. A lovely illustration of this in uh, John Flavel, where he, he tells a story. Flavel was one of those preachers who could tell stories. Well, he tells a story about Decalogue Dodds. He says, being late at night in his study, he was strongly moved, though at an unseasonable hour, to visit a gentleman of his acquaintance, and not knowing what might be the design of providence therein, he obeyed and went. When he came to the house, after a few knocks at the door, the gentleman himself came to him and asked him whether he had any business with him. Mr. Dodd answered, no, but that he could not be quiet till he had seen him. Oh, sir, replied the gentleman, you are sent of God at this hour for just now, and with that he takes the halter, the noose, out of his pocket and says, I was going to destroy myself. And Flavo says, and thus the mischief was prevented. Is that mysticism? Well, that's just the recognition that if God is sovereignly, provident, providentially in control of everything, don't think that there's anything about you that He doesn't know, or that's anything that happens to you that you do not need to assess in the light of what God says in His Word. So, there are mysteries, because God is supernatural, and I'm not supernatural. And the Puritan literature abounds, actually, in this kind of thing, and in the wisdom to know how you handle it, always following through the general principles of Scripture. Now, we may return to some of this in uh, a few minutes, certainly before tomorrow morning. <laughs> Puritan experiential theology, biblical, theological, and of course it is doxological. Who does not know the first question and answer to the Shorter Catechism? This is what we afford. This is what the unbeliever can never understand. For the unbeliever, glorifying God is misery. For the believer, glorifying God is joy. And the Puritans understood, therefore, that that worship of God for which we were created was certainly not limited to the gathering of the church, but it affected every dimension of life because we live in concentric circles. 
individual doxology, family doxology, whole church doxology, and in every detail of life. One of the great questions, will this glorify God according to His Word? Is this wisdom in our worship of God? But of course, supremely, as many of you will know, perhaps because you're familiar with David Clarkson's great sermon, Public Worship Preferred Before Private, that for the Puritans, the epicenter of this worship, the worship that most participated in the worship of heaven was the worship of the gathered congregation. You know, in a sense, that's almost the reverse of how in the last 150 years, evangelicals have been taught to think the really important thing is what happens privately. What happens privately is of supreme importance. But you see, the Puritans understood that there is something very special about the experience of corporate worship, which simply put as this, in corporate worship, all the gifts that God has given to His people in the gathering of all of His people are in exercise. And the Word of God is not only read for our edification, but Christ Himself speaks to His family through that Word of God. And because that was so central to them, they regarded worship as part of the whole of life, worship as the exercise of community life as, of course, being regulated by the Word of God. Because the big question always was, if God desires to be worshipped, then what is His desire for worship? That's a regulative principle, isn't it? That we find out what God wants from God's Word. Um, I think sometimes if we asked that question in churches today, it would go down like a wet blanket. That's not what really matters. What really matters is the way we like to do things, and it's almost offensive to us. Now, there are offensive people who ask this question. I'm not speaking about offensive people asking this question. I'm speaking about me asking this question. How does God want to be worshipped? And it was this that drove the simplicity of their worship because they saw that the object of worship is God in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, and they knew how easy it was for them to be distracted from that, and how easy it was for their eyes to focus on the means by which we worship rather than the object of that worship. And although their patterns of application of the regulative principle are probably not the patterns that most of us employ in our own churches, that issue at least is of enormous significance for us, that nothing should distract us from using the instruments of worship, and I mean that in the general sense, to bring us to God rather than to bring us to the instruments. 
they would be as horrified as I hope you are when experts go along to churches and end up saying there are things you need to attend to in your church, but there's one thing we can tell you, the quality of your morning worship is outstanding. When ministers say that to me, I want the heavens to open and God to speak and say, let me be the judge of that. Because what those experts are speaking about is not the worship. It's how good the instruments of the worship are. The music, the song leader, the choir, the organ, the band, or whatever. And what the Puritans longed for, and the way in which they did it, yes, seemed reactionary to the Anglicans, was to seek simplicity in doxology, lest they be distracted as they knew they so easily could be distracted from the worship of the true and living God. Because they saw over against Catholicism, over against medievalism, and I think, alas, over against what we often see in churches today, worship as a spectator sport, admiring what happens in front of us in its size, in its color, in its drama, in its excellence, and confusing that with ourselves worshiping God Himself in Christ and being taken up with Him so that the instruments in every sense that are used are instruments to help carry us there, not instruments to bar the door of heaven. And you can understand that. And this is why their lives were so doxological. Not only were they doxological, but fourthly, they were covenantal in their theology. Now, lest that be thought to be a Presbyterian trying to sneak in the idea of covenantalism, <laughs> let me say that it, it actually was the Anabaptists who introduced the idea of covenant originally into the whole discussion of the 16th century. And the Reformation covenantal theology of the magisterial reformers kind of was prompted by that. I mean, instead of, alas, drowning some of these Anabaptists, they should have blessed them for introducing them to something that they were in danger of missing. And this was pervasive, um, not in the sense that Kevin was speaking about yesterday. They didn't go rabbiting on about the covenant Sunday school, the covenant children, the covenant this, the covenant that. <laughs> but they saw that Scripture was a covenantal book and that God's covenant was the key to its beautiful unity and its marvelous historical diversity. And they thought about the gospel in these terms. This is how they understood why the word covenant hardly ever appears in the New Testament, because the covenant promises have been fulfilled in the one Isaiah said would be given as a covenant to the nations. The covenant bond of the promise of God had become the covenant person of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that their eyes were not lowered to the idea of a covenant, but to the one who was that covenant 
the divine one taking our human flesh and binding himself to his people. And so, in their lives, they made personal covenants with God, and especially the congregationists made church covenants. You just turn up and become a member, covenanted yourself to the Lord, and you covenanted yourself to your brothers and sisters. That's not to say that they reached any perfection. There are some sermons of Owen's that have never been published towards the end of his life. On one occasion, he told the congregation he thought they needed to renew the church covenant. And he was an unwell man. He doesn't preach for a couple of weeks, turns up a couple of Sundays later, and before he gets into the exposition, he says, I preached a couple of weeks ago about the fact that I thought we needed to renew the church covenant, and I've been upset by the fact that not all of you have agreed with me. And then he said, what's really upset me is some of you didn't even know there was a church covenant. So, we shouldn't have a rose-tinted view of John Owen's congregation. But this was a marvelous unifying factor for them. And the foundation, of course, of their understanding of the centrality of union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ that this covenant bond that we read about in the Old Testament Scriptures coming to fulfillment in Christ is God binding Himself to us in the person of Christ so that we are united with Him. And all the blessings that flow from Ephesians 1, as we were hearing earlier on today, come to us from the bond that is ours with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then that union became the foundation for communion, living in fellowship with God. And here we find some of the Puritans doing a, a, a very interesting thing in their theology. If I can put it in theological terms, they took the old theological idea that the works of God internally and externally, the work of the Trinity is always an indivisible work of the whole Godhead. Everything God does, He does as the one triune God. And marrying that to a doctrine that also came from the early stages of the church known as the personal appropriations of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we're familiar with that. Um, the Father sends the Son. The Son doesn't send Himself. The Son comes. The Son dies on the cross. The Father doesn't die on the cross. Sometimes, think of it like this, the new assistant minister very nervously begins to pray in his first morning service, and he's praying to the Father, and, and 20 seconds later, he's He's kind of lost the plot, and he's thanking the Father for coming and dying for us on the cross. And the nasty people at the back who have a theological education, eh. <laughs> he's committed one of the great heresies of the early church. He's made the Father die on the cross, and we cut him some slack. But we understand in these terms that we actually can't thank the Father for dying on the cross, but we can thank Him for sending His Son to die on the cross. We can thank the Son for dying on the cross. 
can't thank the Spirit for dying on the cross, but we can thank the Spirit for upholding the Lord Jesus through the cross and in His resurrection. And in the two, perhaps the two greatest evangelical theologians of the 17th century, Thomas Goodwin and John Owen, this principle is worked out in very practical ways. So, without losing sight of the old patristic saying of Gregory Nazianzus, I can't think of the one without thinking of the three, and I can't discern the three without thinking of the one, says Thomas Goodwin. Sometimes a man's communion and converse is with the one, sometimes with the other, sometimes with the Father, then with the Son, and then with the Holy Ghost. This is something John Owen then works out, especially in his great work on communion with God. And what it does is that as our sense of the majesty and diversity of the one work of God the Holy Trinity in the personal appropriations, we catch this expansive sense of what the Father and the Son and the Spirit do, and as it were, from below. We taste the joy of knowing each person of the Trinity in the unity of their work, in the diversity of their operations, and we discover that our worship expands, as it were, till, till glory fills our soul. And all this because of the covenant union and communion with the Lord. And of course, it was this that explained why they were so relaxed about the law. You read the catechisms, and somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the catechisms are all about the law. Why? Because as Owen says, they saw that actually the law is what was written in the heart of Adam at the beginning. In that sense, although negatively stated at Sinai, it projects the natural way for man to live. It's as though it was his original companion. And now that he's brought back into union and communion with God the Trinity, yes, of course he or she still struggles with the remnants of indwelling sin, but he or she is able to express the profundity of their love for the law of God because they want to live to please Him, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever. One last point, number five, biblical, theological, doxological, covenantal, and the Puritan experiential theology was also affectional. The Puritans employed, by and large employed what's usually called faculty psychology. They thought about human beings and different dimensions of their being, and uh, especially they thought of Paul's teaching at the end of 2 Timothy 3 in these terms. The Word of God is profitable for doctrine that addresses the mind but it addresses the mind not to stay in the mind. It addresses the mind in order to reach the conscience. It is for reproof. But reproof is only going to bring repentance and transformation if reproof is 
partnered with what in most of our translations is correction. Now, that word correction to me is a very negative word, teacher telling you you're wrong, she corrects you. But it's actually a very positive word. It's language that belongs outside of the New Testament to the world of medicine and healing, mending a broken bone, straightening something that has been distorted. And here it refers to the disordered affections of the fallen individual being reordered, cleansed, transformed by the power of the gospel, by the Word through the Spirit, so that when these affections are renewed, instead of being antagonistic to the condemnation of conscience, and instead of resisting the truth of the gospel, the gospel is embraced. The corrections embrace the reproofs, and it's that that leads to the kind of amiable lifestyle of a John Bruin. William Fenner, who wrote almost the classical Puritan work on the affections, says they are there for an infinite blessing. Without them, we'd be like stocks and senseless stones. Says Richard Sibbs, religion is more in the affections of the soul than in the effects and operations. And if I may say what is most striking is that, in my own view, no Puritan gives more theological emphasis to the role of the affections than the man who was its greatest intellect, John Owen. He says, it is our affections God asks for, and comparatively, nothing else. And he has this, I think, very important pastoral insight. He says, it is vain to contend with anything that hath the power of our affections in its disposal because that will prevail at last. Those of you who are pastors and have had to speak to, seek to help, those who have fallen in egregious ways, that's one of the questions you ask, isn't it? Have the affections been broken? You think of somebody who has fallen into a, a, a relationship with a man or a woman. Their affections have been caught up. They have been deceived. And now they struggle, and you know that unless that affection can be broken, the possibility of transformation is minimal. And says, Owen, oh, what can break the affections? Only the power of the cross of Jesus Christ can break our this-worldly affections and give us an affectionate desire for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true in life, it's true of preaching, that preaching should be affectionate. Says William Fenner, ministers should take note how to stir up men's affections to God. He's not saying be a rabble-rouser, but he quotes the 
16th-century humanist, Rodolphus Agricola, uh, who says this, "'Every man that hath any learning at all is able to teach, but to shake men's affections and thus men's hearts. He is an extraordinary man who can do this.'" After this manner was the preaching of our Savior. That's wonderful, isn't it? So many of our hymns are about this. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but His loved ones know. And what they're saying is that it's not simply the Word of God addressed to the mind, but the Word of God addressed to the mind through an instrument that is attuned to the very affections of that Word. And those of us who preach, we feel that. We feel the responsibility of that, that the affections with which we preach should be themselves an expression of the affection of God for His people. And it's true, isn't it, that if you have some discernment, you often notice that there are those who seem to have massive gifts of communication, but very little harmony of affection that is expressed in the Word of God and expressed through the minister of the Word of God to the people of God. I often think that the most frightening thing of being a preacher is this. You speak as the mouthpiece of God, and over the peace, your congregation may begin to think that God is like you. And you see congregations made in the image of their preachers. They think like Him, they feel like Him, they speak like Him, because they think God is like Him. No wonder James speaks the way he does. But oh, to be under a ministry of the Word of God like this, and the, the men you've read like, like a flavel or a Watson, think about going to church every Lord's Day, listening to flavel or Watson, or even John Owen at times, or Thomas Goodwin, or Richard Sibbs, and the, the anticipation that the truth of the Word, doctrine, will come to your conscience with power, but its truth will be mediated to your obedience through affection, the affection of the shepherd through the under-shepherd for the sheep to bring you through the under-shepherd to the great shepherd and know that He is not only worthy of your worship, but He loves you, loves you, loves you dearly. Kevin leapt out of the 17th century a little. You can excuse the Dutch. <laughs> Let me leap out of the 17th century then as I close because one of the best illustrations of what Puritan experiential theology means and does, to me, has for decades come from a little story that B.B. Warfield tells, possibly about his brother. 
He says, we have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day, he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of countenance, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned to look at him, only to find the stranger had done the same thing. And an observing head turning, the stranger at once came back to him, and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? And on receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. (laughs) Why? That was just what I was thinking of you, was the rejoinder. Says Warfield, and we can say this is true of all great Puritan experiential theology. It's worthwhile to be a shorter catechism boy. They grow to be men, and better than that, they are exceedingly apt to grow to be men, and indeed women, of God. So, may our interest in these ministers of the gospel bear that kind of fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank You for the expansiveness of the gospel. We thank You for the way in which many of us in this room who had very little interest in understanding or knowing or learning anything have been awakened to the pursuit of Christian doctrine by the ministry of Your Word and Spirit. Thank You that You have loved us enough to rebuke us through Your Word. Thank You for the expression of the affection of Your heart through Your Word, through Your servants, to our hearts and lives that has oiled the wheels of our response to You and our love for You. And we pray that as we celebrate this teaching together, as we savor the privilege of knowing God in Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit, and at times are lost in wonder, love, and praise, that we may not only be that here, but the heavenliness of Your presence with us may become characteristic of our lives so that there is something about us that makes it plain that we have union with Christ and communion with God, and that we are Yours, and that we are one in love, that the world may believe that You, our Father, sent Your Son to whom your spirit bears witness, and that he is the Savior of the world. Watch over us, we pray, through the night, we ask. Bring us safely to tomorrow. Grant us the blessings of mutual fellowship and love with one another and the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus, our Savior's name.